Well, good morning and welcome. It is great to be with you once again. Um, it's October. Hey, all right, right? October, Reformation Month, right? I love it, Reformation Month. And uh, we're going to take a little break from 1 Corinthians to do a little lecture series on the Protestant Reformation. That's what we're going to be talking about through the month of October. Uh, October 31st, everyone calls that Halloween. Christians call it harvest. I call it Reformation Day. So um, it is Reformation Day, and uh, so we thought we would just take a break and do something really cool during this month. Uh, not that 1 Corinthians isn't cool, uh, but um, I know when I start talking about what's cool, it makes it sound like other things we've been doing aren't cool, but it's all cool. It's all cool, but we're not going to have time to exhaust this subject of the Protestant Reformation. I mean, come on. It's still going, for crying out loud. Uh, some people say, is it over? No, it's still going. Uh, but it is, uh, there's just so much to it. And so in, in five weeks, we're, we're not going to be able to cover everything. We'll try to cover some of the major events in it, the key, some of the key players that God used, and maybe some of the over arching or arcing goals of the Protestant Reformation over the next five Sundays. And then culminating with a Reformation fest, potluck on the 30th. Hey, all right. So should be a great month, Lord willing. Um, just to give you a baseline, you know, I didn't really start studying Reformation theology until probably about 12 or 13 years ago, so I didn't start my, my Christian walk aware of any of that. I, I think I'd heard of the Protestant Reformation in grade school, right? You know, they give you kind of a, ba I don't know if they do anymore, they probably don't. That's the last thing they want to talk about. Now it's like the Reformation of genders, right? It's not the Protestant Reformation. So, um, so I, I didn't have a lot of knowledge about it, I still don't. Uh, but I, I think we need to just establish some baseline stuff. You may not really know what the Protestant Reformation was or remains or still is. Uh, but really what it was in some ways is it was a, a very pervasive, widespread theological revolt in Europe, primarily against the abuses and um, I would say totalitarian control of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, reformers like Martin Luther, he's probably the, you know, if, if anyone knows anything about the Reformation, that, that name will be familiar, but, and he is, he is a key figure, but uh, that particular guy in Germany, and he was a main figure. You've got uh, Ulrich Zwingli, he was a pretty primary figure in the Reformation, but he was in Zurich, not Germany. And then, uh, obviously, obviously, John Calvin, first in France and then in Geneva. And what these men did was they began to protest various unbiblical practices of the Roman Catholic Church. And, and in the protest against some of those false doctrines and teachings, they essentially promoted a return to Scripture, a return to biblical doctrine. So it was, the Reformation was about reforming it was about taking the church in the world, the Roman Catholic Church, biggest church, biggest, big, biggest idea of Christianity, then taking that and, and reforming it, bringing it back to what it should be. It's, it's essential that we understand that the Reformers' goal was not to start a bunch of denominations. It wasn't even to really 
have a schism and leave Roman Catholicism. It was to reform Roman Catholicism, to bring it back to its roots before it was actually called Roman Catholicism and it was just called Catholicism. So this whole idea of Reformation is to take the church in the world at that time and, and, and to reform it and bring it back to where it should be. That was the entire goal. And I would say that really, really big event that kind of launched everything and, and, and kicked it off was Luther's posting of the 95 Thesis on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, or if you're German, Wittenberg, and it's a W, I don't know why they do that. Uh, and that was on October 31st, 1517. So that, that was kind of the definitive moment where like the line was drawn in the sand. I, I'd like to, I'm just wondering if, has anyone here actually taken the time to read the 95 Thesis? It's actually really, really amazing. Um, it's, you can get a, a, a kind of a current modern day version of it where you know, it, it's something that common folk like us can understand and comprehend, but it is really an amazing, a, a really amazing statement. And Luther pulls no punches in it. He just goes after the papacy. He goes after the Pope. It's an amazing document. That's kind of the launch point um, as a background to the history of Protestantism and the Reformation, what's important for us to understand, uh, it is this Roman Catholic claim of apostolic succession. And, and what that means is that, you know, they, they try to, they have popes, and, and they, they've always had popes primarily, and they try to date them all the way back to Peter, claiming that Peter is the first pope. And so you have like Peter, and then you have the next guy, and the next guy, and the next guy, and it goes on for, you know, 14, 1500 years or so. And so this is a, a big part of Roman Catholicism, and it is a main claim of them then and today. This doctrine literally teaches, and they, they do it in their catechism, they teach all Roman Catholics today that the line of Roman Catholic popes, it extends all the way through all the centuries, all the way back to... Peter. And this unbroken chain of authority allegedly makes the Roman Catholic Church the only true church and gives the Pope a level of preeminence over all churches everywhere. You may not know this or understand this, but the goal of Roman Catholicism has, been, has always been, even then, uh, to bring these rebel churches like ours under their umbrella. They believe, Roman Catholics believe, that the Pope is the head, in a sense on earth, the vicar, the head over all Christian churches, Roman Catholic or Protestant. We, we, are, we are viewed by them as rebels, as protesters who have left the fold. And so the goal is to either damn us or bring us back into Roman Catholicism, which we refuse to join up with for these very reasons that we'll be talking about over the course of many, many weeks. So the Pope isn't thought of as just this head figure over Roman Catholicism. He is believed to be, by Roman Catholics, that's the head of the church on earth. Christ is the heavenly head, and the physical head is the Pope. And so the goal is to bring us back under this. And it's because of this apostolic succession. And, and one thing that they believe 
not only in the succession, but in the infallibility of their popes. What does that mean? That means that popes don't make mistakes. <laughs> right? It's like, literally, they believe that what, whatever the pope says, that's as authoritative as scripture. It bears the same authority, it bears the same weight, and the Christian's responsibility to obey what popes say just as they would scripture. This was a view prior to the Reformation, a view during the Reformation, a view today. So these pope figures that are men are viewed to be infallible in a sense. Therefore, Roman Catholics place church teaching, church tradition, more or less Roman Catholic teaching and tradition, they place it at the same level as Scripture, if not above, if not above. And I think someone once said that the best way to look at Roman Catholicism today would be like looking at the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They've created all this structure to allegedly protect the word but the structure is what they follow instead of the word. That's what the Pharisees did. And that's essentially what Roman Catholics... Now, the average Roman Catholic doesn't know anything about this stuff, but the papacy does. So this is really this idea of apostolic succession, the idea of the Pope's infallibility, the idea of the Pope being over all Christian churches. This is like one of the major differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestants. And it was for these reasons, these reasons are actually foundational to firing up or igniting or starting the Protestant Reformation. Now, there was a, a cadre of issues in Roman Catholicism that led to the Protestant Reformation, but the idea of succession and the infallibility, obviously indulgences and these sorts of things, those were the things that really were the fuel and the spark that ignited this firestorm in Europe, literally. And we don't think, we think like in America, you know, like, because we're so shielded over here and we don't have much history. We're a 200-year-old nation. This was a really, really big deal in Europe. The Protestant Reformation was a massive deal where everybody knew something about it. You know, you can have religious movements here in America and nobody knows nothing. But over there at this time, everyone could see this thing playing out. It was very pervasive and broad. Now... It's important for us to understand that prior to the Protestant Reformation, there were a bunch of pockets of resistance throughout Europe. There were early reformers. There were people that had problems with the infallibility of the Pope, with a Pope in general and all these other issues. There were quite a few men who spoke up against it. There were some small movements that were dealing with it, like the Lollards and the Waldesians, uh, the Petrobrusians. These groups of people all took a stand against these abuses in the Roman Catholic Church. Before Luther ever picked up a hammer and walked over to the castle church, there were a great many uh, courageous men who, you know, stood up for reform, stood up for the true gospel, tried to lead Roman Catholicism back like Wycliffe and Huss and uh, Savonarola. Um, and Cameron's going to talk about some of these guys I think next week, so I don't want to, you know, he'll be like, you just preached my sermon, dude. What were you doing? Uh, but he'll talk about some of these early reformers. It's, it's, it's kind of a mistake for us to think of just Luther 
and Calvin and others, when you have Huss and Wycliffe and Tyndale, other guys that were actually grinding at this stone before Luther and these guys came about. So there is history of the Reformation before the actual Reformation is said to have begun. The um, opposition to the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church came to a head in the 16th century when Luther, he was a Roman Catholic monk, when he challenged the authority of the Pope and in particular the selling of indulgences. And we see the 95 Thesis being nailed to that door of that church in 1517. That was really just this moment where it really took off. The guys who weren't known, started, weren't known prior to him became known because Luther kind of made everyone in the movement kind of popular with his bold move. And uh, do you know what an indulgence was? It, it just It's crazy to me that I think I read a paper a year or two ago where this pope was going to reinstate indulgences. Like you would think that an indulgence was something you know, that they did way back when they didn't know any better. Uh, what an indulgence was, and I guess we have to say currently is, I mean, it was absolutely a major problem for the Reformation, but it wasn't the only problem. But the selling of indulgences was, uh, literally, they were trying to fund a building project, St. Peter's Basilica. You can visit it today. And it was in the early stages, and they needed money for this. The Roman Catholic Church was essentially broke, and they came up with this idea of selling indulgences and the money that they, the proceeds that they collected from the indulgences would fund the project. And the indulgences had to do with purgatory. That's another false Catholic, Roman Catholic doctrine that the reformers rebelled against. But it's this idea that once you die, if you had a lot of sin in your life, you go into purgatory where you are purged of all additional sins and after that process, which takes time, then you can enter into heaven. And the indulgences had to do with shortening that time there. Well, my, uh, my cousin Sally passed away, and I know how sinful she was. She loved the Lord, but she was super sinful. She's probably got about 2,500 years in purgatory. Buy this indulgence, and it'll cut her down to 1,000 years. Okay. This is literally what they were marketing. In fact... They really, really weren't bringing in the kind of revenue that they wanted. So they began to even say things like, you can't really be saved unless you buy an indulgence. It's not faith alone. It's faith plus indulgence. And I'll tell you what, I bet you they were selling a lot of them at that point, right? I mean, think about it. I can't be saved without this piece of paper that says indulgence on it? Give me six. I mean... And these were poor people, you know, these were serfs, whatever you want to call them, um, peasants that were, this stuff was being marketed to. It's amazing how religious systems throughout history have always taken advantage of the poor. And this, is what, this was happening. And this was a major problem. And if you read the 95 Thesis, it mostly goes after this practice. But as I said, it wasn't the only problem. The indulgences was just one of many, many issues. The papacy was attempting to modify key biblical doctrines. I mean, obviously, if you're trying to sell an indulgence that says it'll save you, that's a modification of grace alone and faith alone. But they, they were really modifying, attempting to modify some historical, orthodox, biblical truths. Uh, for example, Scripture, the Bible, 
had always been, always been the church's singular authority and rule for Christian living. Always. But during this period of time, the papacy had added its traditions, had added the decrees of the pope, anything that it could come up, come up with, even the selling of indulgences. They added all of these things to Scripture. So the idea of Scripture alone was lost in Roman Catholicism. The Bible wasn't enough. Faith wasn't enough. So not only did they have the indulgence problem, but they were really modifying and I would say attempting to destroy biblical doctrines. Um, salvation has always been, always been by grace alone, always. There was never a moment where it became about grace alone. Grace alone is seen in the Old Testament, but the papacy added good works. Not to mention they added you working your tail off in purgatory. Justification had always been by faith alone, always. But the papacy added sacraments, okay? You're not justified by simply believing in Christ, which is what the Bible clearly teaches, especially in the book of Galatians. Remember when we went through it? It's in, it's, it's just, it's, it's in nauseating detail, the point of faith alone in Galatians. Like I, Roman Catholics would have to just cut that book out of the Bible because it destroys their entire system. But it's always been this way. And the papacy adds sacraments. You have to do penance. You have to do this. You have to do that. And then once you've done all that you can do plus believing, then maybe you'll make it to purgatory. And maybe after purgatory, Peter will say, come on in. Salvation has always been, always been in Christ alone. Always. Never was there a moment in the history of the world or in the history of biblical truth, the revelation of God, has salvation been anything other than Christ alone? It's always been in Christ. Your faith was either in the Christ to come or it's now in the Christ who came and is coming again. It's always been in Christ. He's always been the lamb who makes that sacrifice, the lambs whose blood that we've been singing about all morning. And yet the, pur the papacy added purgatory. Christ wasn't enough. You needed to be purged in purgatory. And it added indulgences and these other things. The chief end of salvation had always been God's glory because salvation is God's work. It's always been this way. And yet the papacy added the sacraments and indulgences and whatever else it could come up with. Everything else. And so with all these systems and additional false doctrines they're cre they created that are ultimately man-centered, in their system there's really no way for God to get the glory for your salvation. It, it, you can't. How can, you, how can God get the glory for salvation when you're talking about all the stuff that you must do and participate in and exercise and execute with precision to save yourself? But it's always been about God's glory because the Lord says in his word, I save. It's always been about him. It's always been this way. But in Roman Catholicism, they added all this stuff and it, it really, nothing robs God of his glory ultimately, but men sure attempt to do it down here. And when it comes to salvation, it's God's work, but Roman Catholicism says it's mostly man's work. 
It becomes a work of man, which is tragic. Now, in response to these soul-damning fallacies, because that's what they are, there's no way to sugarcoat them. In response to these soul-damning fallacies that were absolutely present, the reality of the Roman Catholic Church during the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, even today, the reformers, in response to that, developed what we call the five solas. The five solas. Sola is a Latin word, and it means alone. So the right way to think of the five solas is the five alones. The five alones. And I'll tell you, I really wanted to save the five solas and a few other things for the, the last message, because I wanted to talk about some of the enduring, continuing benefits of the Reformation. But I just found myself having to get into these now because I have to give you, I have to provide you with some kind of context for why the Reformation took place. And if I could summarize the entire Protestant Reformation, I would summarize it in the five solas. Because that is what the Protestant reformers were trying to correct. These are the things that were lost in Roman Catholicism and sadly still are. What are the five solas? They are sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone. They are sola fide, meaning faith alone. Sola gratia, meaning grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, meaning for the glory of God alone. And so what I want to do is just, this won't be exhaustive. You could spend a lot of subject on each one of these. In fact, Bill found out what I was preaching on and said, so how many weeks are you going to put in on the solas? And I was like, one Sunday. He's like, dude. It's like I let the air out of his balloon. Right? But we have five weeks, so this is, this, is, this is more like lecture series, short and sweet. But let's take a closer look. Firstly, we want to look at sola scriptura, scripture alone. And Chrissy puts that up for you. It's kind of hard to see because it gets washed out. But sola scriptura, what does it mean? It, it, what does it mean? It means that, that Scripture alone is our final authority for all matters of faith and practice. That's what it means. Uh, Martin Luther put it very well, very eloquently, very clearly when he was in a hearing and thought that he was going to be judged to death, literally thought he was going to have the death sentence cast on him, and, 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 and he's, you know, he's, he's being challenged. You need to recant on your writings, which, which basically affirmed Scripture alone as well as other solas, but he's standing before a panel. His life is in their hands at this point, and he says something that is just so bold and brilliant. And this is after a night of prayer and torment because he was worried that he, I don't know if he was worried that he would recant, but he was worried that he would fail in that moment to take a stand. And he's standing before a panel that can kill him on the next day. And he says this, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, and he is talking about reason that is guided by scripture alone, he says, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And then he says, after he says this, because he's saying this to people who could kill him, God help me, I'm in. <laughs> Literally, right? And, and there's people in the room that undoubtedly clapped for him that were wanting reforms. And there was people in there that were gnashing their teeth. So he makes this bold statement about Scripture alone. You want me to recant on what I have said about Scripture alone? 
it is our authority. Popes are not our authority. Popes are not infallible. He makes this statement about Scripture alone. It's probably one of the boldest things that you'll ever see throughout church history, with the exception of maybe the apostles standing up to the Sanhedrin and obviously Jesus standing up to the Sanhedrin. Now, Scripture alone is the standard by which all teachings and traditions of the church must be measured, literally. Since Scripture alone is our authority, uh, absolute authority on, on our entire lives, including our spiritual lives, it, it must be the measuring rod that we use to test all things, whether it be something in the culture that we're examining, whether it be some kind of a alleged doctrinal truth or whatever, or for Christian living, this is where we go. This is the authority over all of that. It, it is, it is the, 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 the tool by which, or the measuring rod by which we measure all things. The last thing that we want to do is measure, uh, you know, spiritual ideas with the opinions of men or, you know, with, with something else, with extra biblical resources, unless they're just touting Scripture. And so Scripture is the standard. It is what we use to measure. If we have a tradition in the church, we have to take Scripture and look for support for that tradition. And if we can't find it in Scripture, then why are we doing this tradition? What is this? Why, why, are, we, why are, are we wasting our time with this? If it's not something that's supported by Scripture, then I, I would have to say we are. If there's some particular area of our life that we live out, and, and we're not sure about that, if we can't find support for that in Scripture, then why are we living our life in such a way? People are under this weird delusion that the Scripture is not enough. It's absolutely enough. If it is our full authority and the full word of God to his people, it's enough. We don't need Jesus calling. We don't need anything else. I want to hear God speak. Read his word aloud. Read the Bible aloud. We, it, it is enough for us. It is enough for us. And, and somehow this idea that it's not enough, that things aren't clear enough on certain subjects, and there are some subjects that aren't lucidly clear, but you can find the answers by just gaining wisdom through Scripture. People are under this delusion that we need something with Scripture. This is Roman Catholicism in a nutshell. I, I remember years ago kind of laying out a challenge, laying down a challenge to pastors that I, I worked with, and, um, you know, it was the whole idea of youth ministry. And, you know, I was a youth minister, so I was basically in this office shooting at myself, which I was like Luther, you know. I was like putting myself in jeopardy here, and I... I just have a hard time with this whole idea of youth ministry, you know, and all the pastors in the church at the time were complaining about this disconnect that happens after kids graduate from high school or college, they leave the church. And, and, I, and I'm like, maybe that's because they don't think they have anything else to go to after being into something for 14 years. Maybe what we ought to do is raise them in the body and supplement their walk with some kind of ministry for them. But instead, you know, you show up on a campus, a church campus, especially the bigger ones, and the family goes like this. Kids go over here and get babysat or taught about how Jesus loves them. Uh, junior hires are over here doing their thing. High schoolers are over here. Now you got the Club 56 thing. You got the 5th and 6th Age and stage for every age and stage. And you're too old for the main service. You need to go into the elderly service, right? Where is it at? It's in Florida because that's where all old people go to go be with the Lord shortly after. Um, it, 
I mean, literally, it's like age and stage for everything, right? And, and everyone's scratching their head like, what are we doing wrong? And I'm like, age and stage ministry is what we're doing wrong. It's like, get out of here, Luther, you idiot. You know, it, it's, and, and one response that I got from one guy that I still love and respect was, well, you know, the Bible isn't totally clear about, you know, how we should minister to children. And so God has given us brains and we're supposed to use them. And then I'm like, let me guess. And your conclusion after using your brain is to fragment families. That's not what I'm talking about, <laughs> right? But, you know, some things aren't clear. And I think youth ministry is just fine for kids. And I'm like, I have no problem with it on Monday night. It doesn't compete with Sunday morning. But, you know, this idea that it, it's just, we, we really, it's not here and it's not clear. And so, therefore, we are using our brains, right? The brain and the heart of man are deceitfully corrupt. We're using these things to figure out how to best minister to kids. And then the idea was, let's split up the families on Sunday morning and, and do all that. And some churches in town are so bad about it, you can't even bring a little one into the service. They tell you, there's a special room for you over there, right? Yeah, see all the people in there that are really depressed? Go in there with them. <laughs> see them? It's like Brian Regan, the juice people, you know? It's like they're over there. So, uh, it, and this is, this, is a, this is a pervasive thought among pastors today that, you know, the Bible isn't clear about this, so we have to use our brains. It's like, you know what? We have the Holy Spirit who's supposed to be our brain. What are we doing here? This is nothing new. And I think that when you say that Scripture isn't clear about something, especially something pertaining to ministry, and now we have to use our brains, you have now departed from sola scriptura, Right? I think that when, when you plan your worship services and you put 74 songs in the service and there's no gap between them, like the musicians are so talented, they just go from one to the next, you know? And there's 74 songs, there's a 15-minute sermonette, and there's a 20-minute video, right? And the benediction is, you know, have a beer. I, I don't think that you're sola scriptura. I don't. I don't think that you're sola scriptura when scripture is so minimized or minimalized in your service. I don't think that you can make that claim. You can ask any pastor anywhere and they will tell you, I am all about the word. The word is the most important thing in our worship service. It's the centerpiece. Then why did you give a TED talk on John 3.16 and do 81 songs? You, you, have, you have to back up what you say with a good sermon. Give it at least 45 minutes, right? This is the only church that I know of that gets upset when the sermons are shorter. <laughs> Literally. I remember somebody was complaining to me constantly about long sermons, and I was like, well, let me see what I can do. And then one guy came in, if you do that, I'll leave. He was talking about shortening it from like an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> I was like, that's too long for me. But I find myself doing it week in and week out, so it's okay. I mean, literally. This is a church that that I think really values, you know, the Word and wants to be in the Word and, and, you know, doesn't want to do 82 songs and have a weird benediction and everything else. You want the truth. You want the Word. And, and, and these things just prove sola scriptura. You know, if you value the Word above everything else, you're sola scriptura if that's what you use. It is the standard for every teaching, every tradition, everything must be measured with it. Now, then that's sola scriptura. There's another 
Latin phrase called nuda scriptura, nuda scriptura, N-U-D-A. And it means no creed but the Bible. No creed but the Bible. That's what it means. And this camp can be even more extreme than sola scriptura. Uh, those who sing this mantra believe that creeds and confessions are neither useful nor necessary in the church. Okay? They're like, I only go by the Bible, and um, it is, I am sola scriptura to the point that I pay zero attention to anything else. Okay? And, and I can kind of understand the, the idea and thinking behind that. But maybe the person doesn't understand that there are some wonderful catechisms and wonderful reformed creeds that are only scripture. And they explain them in such a way, the scriptures in such a way that we can put handles on it, especially the difficult truths. So this camp says, I don't want creeds. I don't want confessions. I don't want catechisms. I want scripture alone. And I get it. I want scripture alone. But I tell you what, if I can find a confession that is purely scriptural, that helps me understand, maybe even systematizes the doctrines of scripture, I'm all for it. I don't want a creed that leads me away from scripture. I don't want a catechism that does that. I'm not new to scriptura. I am sola scriptura and careful. And I think that's what we should be. And you need to understand that during, during this part of the Reformation, the Reformers were sola scriptura, but they were not against biblical creeds. They were not against catechisms. In fact, during this period, they cranked out some of the best ones we've ever seen. The Belgic, uh, the Belgic is wonderful. The Westminster, these are documents that, that we have used in our own studies, that we have given out books on because they systematize doctrinal truths in such a wonderful way. And so, when you say sola scriptura, the reformers would say, no, we don't reject all creeds or catechisms or confessions. Some of them are very, very valuable because they help us understand God's word. And I think in that regard, they are absolutely right. But you've got these people who claim to be these purists and they only go by scripture. You know what my reply to them is? And I say this in love while laughing inside. Do you attend a church? Yes. Do you sit under the teachings of someone at that church? Yes. Do you read extra biblical books? Yeah, I just got done reading Crazy Love by Francis Chan. Uh-oh. So, so you are not a biblical purist. Yes, I am. I only go by the scripture. No, anytime you attend a church or place yourself under somebody's teaching, you're taking on someone's theology and you're developing a lens by which you start to see scripture. And you, everyone is a theologian. Why? Because everyone has thoughts of God, even unbelievers. Even atheists are theologians. You can't be an atheist without rejecting God. Therefore, you have a thought about God, so you are a theologian you're just a really bad one. Everyone is a theologian. Everyone has a theology. Everyone. If you've ever heard a sermon, if you've ever read anything outside of scripture, you swim in a theological stream, whether you want to recognize that or not. So my response to the nudist scripture of people are, you, you do have a theology. You are a theologian in a way because you sit under the teachings and you have your thoughts about God 
instead of rejecting the idea of anything outside of Scripture, which is a total contradiction because you place yourself under extra-biblical teachings, instead of taking that kind of hypocritical approach to this and condemning me because I like the, you know, the, the, the 69 London Baptist, instead of hammering me because I like that, why don't you do a little research, since you already swim in a theological stream, why don't you do a little research and find the best stream to swim in? That's what you ought to do rather than trying to reject it while practicing it. And I would just have to say that after being a believer for nearly 20 years, after being a pastor for, Lord, I don't know, 15 of those years or so, um, according to all my study of Scripture, and let me tell you something right now. In my own personal study of Scripture, I've come up with my own theological ideas. And, and then what I began to do was to look to see if others had these ideas. And after doing quite a bit of research, I found out that the Reformation stream was the one that had these ideas long before I was even a glimmer in my parents' eyes, that they were thinking the same things and systematizing Scripture in this. I was a Calvinist before I even knew who Calvin was, literally. Because my own conversion story has me zero interest in God going from zero interest to nothing but interest. And it wasn't because I walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. So I believed in the sovereignty of God in salvation before I even knew what a Calvinist was. I had no idea. I had my own ideas as I studied Scripture. I just found tons and tons of affirmation through the writings of really, really, really faithful old dead guys and some who are still around. Pick the best stream. Research and find the best stream. Creeds and confessions can be helpful in many, many ways, provided that they are rooted in Scripture. One such way is protection. A creed or a confession can help to protect you against some of your own ideas. Because sometimes when you're studying and reading Scripture on your own, you come up with some crazy stuff. Right? You're like, I wonder if this is what this means. Then you read in some confession, and you're like, I am apostate. That is not what Jesus meant. I need to stay away from that. Thank you for the confession. Right? Thank you for the little tiny commentary in the bottom of my MacArthur Study Bible. You have a MacArthur Study Bible? You are a confessionalist. You have taken honest theology. Just be careful with some of it. Right? Because not, the best of men are at best men. But creeds and confessions can be helpful. They can help to protect us. If a confession establishes a proper biblical theology on a particular subject, it can help to protect individuals from going down crazy rabbit holes, which I do all the time. It can protect them against their own imaginations. It can protect them against others who are trying to lead us into every wind of doctrine. Believe it or not, we have an adversary who is constantly working to deceive us. And I would say that the great confessions, the London and the Westminster, and yeah, they've got some things in there that you're like, I don't know, but the majority of the doctrinal truths that are recorded there, the expressions or explanations are sound and they can help to protect you. The biggest threat to the church isn't just some kind of a heresy or something creeping in. It is and always has been bad interpretation or cruddy hermeneutics. That has always been the greatest threat to the church. Bad interpretation, misreading, misunderstanding, misinterpreting a particular text because you have a bad 
hermeneutic, it leads to fallacies, it leads to apostasy, it leads to heresy. I'm, I don't know if Mormons started out the way they did, but they had a series of horrific interpretations, and now look at them. Uh, the same thing goes with Roman Catholicism, a series of horrific, I found, I found purgatory in this verse. What? How? Bad hermeneutics, bad interpretation. That's the threat. If you have a bad hermeneutic, you end up with bad interpretation, you end up with fallacies, apostasy, you end up with heresy. But if a, you know, if a biblical hermeneutic is used, uh, like you're interpreting Scripture with Scripture and you're comparing that to you know, what all Scripture says, you're comparing it to Christian orthodoxy or church orthodoxy, those sorts of things, you're interpreting according to um, maybe the redemptive hermeneutic, which is good because the whole Bible is based on that. If you use that kind of interpretation, uh, if you use that kind of hermeneutic, your interpretation is going to be sound. It's going to be trustworthy. And many of the great creeds and confessions resulted from really, really, really good hermeneutics, excellent and proper translation. That's why they're safe to use. But again, what is your standard? This is your standard, not the confessions. Those are aids. Those are helps. This is your standard. So I would say, therefore, some of these creeds and confessions should be utilized in catechizing believers. That's training believers. As I said, everyone is a theologian. You know, everyone has ideas about God and, and the Word. And so, and there's some out there that have much better ideas than us, and it's worth paying a little bit of attention to them. Um, couple of issues like with some confessions and creeds, and it would be most of the ones that are associated with Presbyterianism and some of the Reformed movement, but in their creeds they do speak of, especially the Westminster, about baptizing babies, which honestly is borrowed from Roman Catholicism. We call it pedo-baptism. That's what it's called. That is something that as I'm reading like the Westminster, um, I was reading the Belgic earlier, uh, just like a month ago, which is absolutely beautiful. Um, you, everything, you're like, yes, 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 amen, yes, 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 amen. Then you get to that, you're like, nope. And then you move on to the next point, yes, 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 amen, yes, yes, right? This is what happens. H how do I know that, that pedo-baptism is an issue for many of my Reformed brothers and sisters? This is how I know. This is how I know it's an issue because I can't find anywhere in Scripture where the baptizing of babies is legit. I think what happens with them is they get their ideas about baptism from the Old Testament. Huge mistake. You, you have people believing in Acts 2 and being baptized. There's your standard. Your standard comes from the New Testament. The New Testament is the full revelation of whatever exists in the Old Testament. So believer's baptism is what we believe here. So I reject that view. There's another view that I have great difficulty with. It's called theonomy. You don't really see it in the creeds and confessions, but it's something that Calvin kind of drifted into in others. And theonomy is the, the idea that, that, that the church is just going to overwhelm the world and take over all the governments and everything else. We're not really talking about the return of Christ. We're talking about like it's ultimately going to be the church's job to wield the sword of capital punishment and in some ways, it's the state's job to wield the sword of the Spirit. So it's a completely backwards way of thinking. Like the church kind of becomes the state, and the state kind of never becomes the church, but exercises church-like duties. And this is what happens when you try to merge church with civil government and these sorts of things. 
You know, when you've got all these Trump-supporting Zionists that are just begging for Trump or some other conservative leader in there because they want this Christian and all that, you know what's driving that? It could be a, a, a theonomic view. It could be theonomy. We want a Christian America. We want a Christian nation. Newsflash, there's never been one. There's only the kingdom, a Christian kingdom. And where is it at? In Modesto, in Washington? It's right here. It's in the heart. But let me tell you something right now. It's going to be manifested physically on earth. It's going to be extraordinary. And it is being manifested in the hearts of God's people, but it will be physically manifested at the return of the Lord Jesus. Theonomy, paedo-baptism, no thanks. I see a separation of church and state in Scripture, but not at the level that the state is doing it today. You got the commandments in front of a court building. Oh, you know, oh, we've lost the world. You know, it's the end of the world. Well, all law is essentially based on either uh, what was his name, Hammurabi or whatever, or <laughs> Judeo-Christian law. So I don't think it's a bad thing to have your law, you know, your Ten Commandments posted out there in front of a, a court building. That's an abuse of separation. But you've got these ideas, and we reject those ideas. We reject paedo-baptism. We reject um, this crazy theonomy. And it's Roman Catholicism, but it's also a Presbyterian thing, which is kind of sad. And, and these things pretty much, I think, deviate away from sola scriptura. That's the point. Key verses for sola scriptura, scripture alone, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Paul says, I have applied all these things. By the way, this is like the next verse in, in our series. I thought, hey, this is cool. Uh, we won't be there till, uh, till November. But 1 Corinthians 4, 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may, may, may be puffed up in favor, uh, in favor of one against another. And so, not to go beyond what is written. There's your sola scriptura right there. Do not go beyond what is recorded, what has been revealed by God. And of course, we know the Corinthian church was going well beyond that because they were adopting the Greek standards. 2 Peter chapter 1, 20 to 21, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is another great word, a great verse for sola Scripture. It's not something coming from an interpretation like maybe a pope or something like that. It's, uh, there's no prophecies that were produced by the will of man. It's all... What he's saying is essentially God breathed, carried along through all those prophets, through the apostles, through the Holy Spirit. Another sola scriptura verse, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. This is a great one, probably one of the big go-tos. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then in Deuteronomy 4, 2, Proverbs 30 5 and 6, and Revelation 22, 18 to 19, all three of those passages, they all affirm sola scriptura by warning the readers of scripture not to add to or to subtract from scripture. 
Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Proverbs 35 and 6, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And then obviously Revelation 22, 18 to 19, that's the very end of the book. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him plagues, the plagues described in this book. And those are some scary plagues. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book book. So there you have three massive passages that definitely support sola scripture and warn any and all readers and studiers and preachers don't ever add to it or subtract from it. Some people like in Roman Catholicism say it's okay for our traditions. It's okay for whatever the decrees of the Pope are because scripture doesn't actually teach sola scriptura. And then when you point out one of these verses, they say, well, that is only referring to the book of Deuteronomy. Well, that is only referring to Proverbs. That is only referring to Revelation. You're not to add to the book of Revelation. I find it interesting that these three warnings are at the beginning of the Bible, in the middle of the Bible, and then at the end of the Bible. Don't you find that to be interesting? Could that mean that God is trying to warn us throughout his word not to add and subtract, and it has nothing to do with don't add to Deuteronomy? It has to do with don't add to it, don't add to it, don't subtract from any of it. That is the meaning. Sola Scriptura. Number two, sola fide, faith alone. It means that we are justified by faith alone, not by works of the law. It is by faith in Christ that his righteousness is imputed to us. His righteousness is the only possible satisfaction of God's perfect standard. This is the central message of Galatians, faith alone. It really is the central message of the whole Bible, if you think about it. I like what R.C. Sproul said in a video teaching series on this. He says, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. If we lose it, we lose Christianity. If we don't have the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you don't have the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, the church has no reason to exist. The church itself ceases to be a church and falls into apostasy because it is the article that answers the question, what must I do to be saved? And what is that? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a terrifying warning from Sproul because Roman Catholicism has rejected this doctrine as well as other denominations and other groups. It's a terrifying thing. When you reject justification by faith in Christ alone, you have thrown out the gospel. You have thrown out the gospel. And you have replaced the purpose of the church with something else because the purpose of the church is to propagate, to spread, to perpetuate the gospel. So what do you end up with if you take out justification by faith alone? What do you take, what do you, what, you lose the essence of what the church is when you denounce or deny sola fide. And then the church becomes a club for other things like these sacraments and like worshiping Mary and like praying to saints and like doing all of these other things and anticipating a short stay in purgatory. Praise the Lord, I was only there for five minutes. I mean, this is the kind of nonsense. A church ceases to be a church, but it still calls itself a church and it still has about, I don't know, how many people? 
How many people are in Roman Catholicism? Hundreds of millions? This is a terrifying thought. Key verses for sola fide, faith alone. Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness because of his works, because of his faith. That's how he was made righteous before God. That's how God said, you are right before me because you are trusting in my son to come. Romans 3, 21 to 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's how you get righteous, through faith in Jesus, not through works of the law. Romans 4, 5. To the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. I don't know how you can't get, that's just as clear as you can be. Galatians 2.16, know, <laughs> know that a person is not justified by works of the law. That must mean he's justified by works of the law. He's not justified by works of the law, Paul says, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You have to omit the book of Galatians to carry on this nonsense and Romans and Genesis and Romans again. It's insanity. Number three, sola gratia, grace alone. It means that we are saved by grace alone, not by the work we do. It's very similar to faith alone. It, we're talking more or less about salvation, which is the holistic expression of what justification is. It means that we are saved by grace alone, not by what we do. This grace is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit who raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life. We call that regeneration. John 3 is a great place to look at in that. Ephesians 2. And after that person is raised to spiritual life, they are, in a sense, they are experiencing what we call the first resurrection, which is regeneration. After that occurs, the gifts of faith and repentance are then granted uh, by that same grace through the same Holy Spirit, thus enabling the sinner to come to Christ freely of his or her own volition and with total and eager anticipation to be saved by the Lord. That's what they do. They come gladly. They come joyfully. No one ever comes to Christ after being raised with him in new life, regenerated, born again. No one ever comes to him by kicking and screaming. I once heard a preacher said, I came to Christ kicking and screaming. And I was like, you didn't come to him. I didn't say that, but that's what I thought. I'm not that bold. But it's like, nobody, co who comes to Christ? Kick I kick and scream against him after I've come to him because I find it difficult to obey him. And I have the stupid flesh, but I didn't come kicking and screaming. I ran to him with arms open and tears streaming once I realized what he had done for me and what he was doing for me. Nobody comes kicking and screaming. How can you who've been given a new nature with new desires come kicking and screaming? You come joyfully and you are doing it of your own volition. Nobody's forcing you. God's not saying now, get over there and go to Jesus. That never happens. You go because you have a new nature. Carl Truman wrote, the language, oh, 
goodness, this is amazing. The language of grace so permeates the Bible and, and all traditions of Christian theology that to claim that grace, uh, salvation is by grace alone is in itself to claim very little at all. It's not a big deal because it's so common. Everyone in Christendom should know this and understand this. Every Christian should know that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Faith alone. This is exactly what he's saying. He's saying that salvation by grace alone is, is so common in Scripture. It's so present throughout church history that when we use this term, it should literally come as no surprise to anyone. In other words, anyone who knows anything about Christendom will know something of this fundamental truth. Christianity, if we want to call it a religion at all, and it, I think you know, by definition it is in a way because we have certain beliefs and we have a God that we worship. That's the definition in Webster's. As a religion, this is one of the things that separates it from all other religions because all other religions, and I think there's probably seven to 10,000, they're all based on works. They're all based on what you do. And in some of them, if you don't get it right, you get to come back and redo it as a cockroach. And that'd be bad because that's what I do to cockroaches. Sorry, Jimmy. Seriously, this is one of the things, this, is a, this, this idea of being, this doctrine of being saved by grace is specifically and explicitly a Christian thing. It does not belong to other religions. You talk to any Muslim and they'll tell you they're working their tail off. You talk to Roman Catholics and they'll tell you they're working their tail off. The Pope said, I got to buy an indulgence so they can remodel St. Peter's Basilica. I just bought two of them for the price of three. Even unbelieving pagans, atheists, everyone's semi-familiar with us. They've heard it, yet they don't believe it. And yet Roman Catholics who claim to be Christian cannot figure this grace alone thing out. They claim grace alone, but then add the sacraments and a lot of other nonsense. And the minute that anything is added to grace, it ceases to be grace. Grace means unmerited favor. And that means it comes to us from one direction. One direction. It comes straight down to us from the Father who is in heaven. And, and He is the one who graces or doesn't. It's His prerogative to do it but it comes straight from Him. There's nothing that we're doing down on our side to like, hey, look at me. There's nothing that we do that conjures a response from Him, a grace response. It comes directly from Him out of pure mercy to unworthy sinners. There's nothing we can do to trigger a response from Him. We cannot make ourselves grace worthy. We can't make ourselves graceable. We deny that salvation is in any sense a human work. Human methods, techniques, and, or strategies by themselves cannot accomplish regeneration or transformation. It is by pure grace. And this grace is not just grace that saves. It's grace that sanctifies. It's grace that empowers Christian living. It's grace that empowers and gives and supplies grace in our lives through the Holy Spirit. 
key verses for sola gratia, grace alone, Titus 2, 1, or 11 to 13. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Uh, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, which is an evil age, by the way, and difficult, while we wait for the blessed hope, that's the age to come, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, there's a clear verse on grace. God is saving people by grace alone, is what he says. And, and, and we even go against ungodliness and worldly passions because of this grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. That's how the grace comes. That's the conduit. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. Why? So that no one may boast. See, if salvation was a human work, we could certainly boast about it. And I think some are going to attempt to do that up there, but they'll probably be turned away and go right down the uh, long slide to the other place. Acts 20, verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I am commending you, I am handing you, I am giving you, I am placing you in the Father's hands and that his word of grace, his word of grace would build you up and do these things. It's all grace, sola fide. Number four, solus Christus, Christ alone. This means that salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. It's in Jesus Christ alone. Matthew Barrett wrote, solus Christus expresses the biblical conviction that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Christ's identity is, is absolutely exclusive and his work entirely sufficient. We have no need then for any other prophet to provide us with a new revelation, any other priest to mediate between us and God, or any other king to rule Christ's church. Christ alone stands at the center of God's eternal purposes. Christ alone is the object of our saving faith, and therefore Christ alone must stand at the very center of our theology. That is a wonderful, wonderful quote. Our salvation has been accomplished by the mediatorial work of the historical, biblical Christ alone, the Christ of this Bible. It's by His finished work, His mediating, mediatorial work alone that our salvation is in. His sinless life and substitutionary atonement alone are sufficient for justification and reconciliation to the Father. We deny that we need someone or something other than or in combination with Jesus Christ to be saved. In other words, the buck stops with Him. We don't need gurus. We don't need anything. We don't need a pope. We don't need anyone or anything else. Christ alone, solus Christus. John 3, 16, great verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He didn't say he gave his only son plus this prophet, plus this guy, plus Muhammad. It's only his son, Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, oh, you know this one. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What name? Jesus Christ. By the way, his name's Jesus Christ is who he is. He's the Messiah. Hebrews 7.25, 
Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It says Christ is able to save to the uttermost. If salvation had a furthest point and highest expression, only Christ can bring you there. This is what he's saying. Uh, Titus 3.5, Christ saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Wow, can't get clearer than that. First Tim 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. That's it. It stops with him. One and only Savior, one Lord, one Savior, one King of Kings, one Messiah, one Christ, and His name is Jesus. So feel comfortable with using His name. Amen? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Number five, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. This means that God alone gets all the glory for our salvation. Salvation is of God and has been accomplished by God for His glory alone. Uh, this is a great quote from Renaud van der Riet. I don't even know if I pronounce that right. Sorry, Renaud or Renaud. He says, salvation is a work of God and only God. There is glory to be given for this incredible work. It is not going to be a glory given to man in any way, shape, or form because all things are ultimately for the glory of God. Amen to that. Now, during the 16th century, the papacy and Roman Catholics alike would not have denied that God alone should get the glory for salvation or anything else. They probably would still deny the idea of giving glory to man or anyone else today. But the theological and religious systems they created relied so heavily on man's cooperation that the power and glory of God was seemingly lost in salvation. So most Roman Catholics are, are not going to, you know, if you say, hey, you don't believe that God gets the glory for salvation alone. Yes, I do. Okay, you profess that, but the system you belong to denies it at every step. If a lost sinner converted to Roman Catholicism and observed the ordinances such as baptism and penance and satisfied all the other sacraments, then they were deemed saved. I mean, how could God get all the glory for such a salvation when men and women were performing all these deeds and essentially saving themselves? It's a question you have to ask. Uh, the papacy was doing this, but actually kind of oblivious to it, and Roman Catholics are still oblivious to it. God cannot receive the glory he deserves while men are jumping through religious hoops in an effort to secure their own salvation. That's just the way it works. I'm sorry if people don't like that. It's the way it is. In that scheme, man either gets all of the glory or some of the glory. God doesn't get all of it from that man. David Van Drunen, he said, even if Rome never directly denounced the idea of, the glory, uh, of glory to God alone as it denounced the ideas of Scripture alone and faith alone, soli deo gloria can be understood as the glue that holds all the other solas together or the center that draws the other solas into the grand unified work. That's a great explanation. Now, this is how the reformers viewed the papacy in Roman Catholicism. They viewed them as going astray. They viewed them as rejecting all of these key essential doctrines, especially uh, soli deo gloria. Were they correct? Yes, they were correct. 
We affirm that, especially talking about Soli Deo Gloria in regards to salvation, we affirm that because salvation is of God and has been accomplished by God alone, it most certainly is for God's glory alone. There's no room for the glory of man in God's plan of salvation. Jesus literally said, apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. You can't do anything apart from me. You can't save yourself. You can't justify yourself. There's nothing that you can do. You can't even live and walk without me. So, I mean, this, this is how clear scripture is. If it were possible for someone to attain salvation through works of the law, then he would have something to boast about, Romans 4, 2, Ephesians 2, 9. But it is impossible. We cannot save ourselves. We who were dead in our sins, Ephesians 2, 1, could do nothing to help ourselves toward eternal life. So we praise and glorify God alone because he alone gave us the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6, 23, the glory is God's, not ours. We are to live our entire lives before the face of God, quorum Deo, uh, and, and, and under the authority of God in his word and, and for his glory alone. We deny that we can properly glorify God, that we can give him all the glory if our soteriology, our understanding of salvation, if our ecclesiology, view of the church, and our polity, practice of ministry and worship are man-centered rather than gospel-centered or Christocentric. How can you give God all the glory when all that you're doing is catering to men? You can't. Key verses for soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Romans 6, 4. I would just say, here's your key verses. Read the whole Bible and you will discover this. But to keep it short and sweet, Romans 6, 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism in, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the, by the, glory of the Father, we, we too might walk in newness of life. He talks about how Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We have been raised to new life by the glory of the Father and for the glory of the Father. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All things, especially salvation. 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. <laughs> talk about your salvation. Don't talk about what you did. Talk about God because he's the one that saved you and let him get all the glory for it. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He's talking about Jesus. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All things exist for the glory of God, especially our salvation. Final thoughts. These five important doctrines are the reason the Protestant Reformation actually occurred and is still occurring. This is why. This is why I had to talk about the solas today. Without the solas, we don't have a rationale for the Reformation. These are the things that the Roman Catholic Church disregarded, those Solas. And really, before they were called solas, they were just called biblical doctrines. 
They are at the heart of the reformer's call for the church to return to biblical teaching. The five solas are just as important today in evaluating a church and its teachings as they were in the 15th or in the 16th century. In my humble opinion, uh, they are the solution to the current seeker-sensitive, glory-displacing mess well-intentioned churches have created in an attempt to reach lost sinners for Jesus Christ. You know, when you see the seeker-sensitive movement and you see the, the watering down of the gospel and all that, that is coming from an ignorance of these solas. People don't understand. They don't understand what the Bible says about salvation, and so they have to use their brains and come up with these schemes. If the five solas are applied, which are scriptural, reformation will come. If they are rejected... Churches will continue down a dangerous path and eventually have their lampstand removed, just like the Roman Catholic Church. It does not have a lampstand. It has been gone for a long time. My exhortation to us is may we heed this very timely warning, because it dates back to the Reformers. May we heed this timely warning, and may we apply the five solas to our daily lives and especially to our ministries for the glory of God alone, soli Deo Gloria. Amen?